Welcome to the All of Life podcast from Redemption Church Tempe, where we have conversations on faith, culture, theology, and beyond to help us live all of life, all for Jesus. Let's jump into today's episode. Welcome to the All of Life podcast, where we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. My name is John Crawford, and I am really excited for this episode today because I'm here with two of my really good friends, Warren Williams hey, hey. and Josh Butler. Hello. Josh is also one of my favorite authors, and uh, we're going to be talking about something that he writes about in uh, his book, The Skeletons in God's Closet. It's a really important topic. Um, we're going to be talking about Holy War, mm. specifically uh, issues of violence in the Old Testament, genocide. Is God condoning genocide? Genocide? Is he prescribing genocide? And really, the the inception of this podcast, while we're sitting around this table today, is uh, for one, Josh has written on it in his book. But more than that is there's been numerous people in our congregation who uh, thankfully are reading their Bibles, but as they're reading through the Old Testament, They've expressed questions around the violence in the Old Testament and really wrestling with holy war. And, and, I, and I've heard things around like, man, it seems like God is unnecessarily violent in the Old Testament. Absolutely. Is he a bloodthirsty? You know, is, is he just slaughtering women and children? And honestly, if any of us have read through the Old Testament, there, there are some troubling passages mm. that really make you wrestle with the ethics. And it seems like, man, if God is... Uh, if this is in God's word, how do we as Christians make sense of this? And so, man, I'd love to hear, Warren, have you wrestled with this same same oh, thing? Oh, yeah, man. I think this question um, is one of almost as old as time, right? As people mm. have kind of wrestled with what they're reading um, in the Old Testament. And I just think about like all those videos I've seen of like Christian content on YouTube and stuff like that. And in those comments, you can pretty much guarantee there'll be a person like, that will say like, hey, do you guys know that your God that you're saying is so good and just, do you know that he condones genocide, that he condones like the murdering of women and children? It's just a, a question that I've personally had to wrestle with. And I'm just excited um, that one, we have Josh here because yeah. this dude is like written a whole book on this. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that we can kind of, um, you know, uh, just do some of this wrestling together as we uh, tackle this issue. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Josh, you've written uh, in your book on some paradigm shifts to to really help us see, hey, there's some caricatures that oftentimes we have, and you've provided some really helpful shifts, man. What what are some of those that'll help us navigate these tough passages in the Old Testament? Great, yeah. Well, first off, I think the problem passages many people struggle with here is what I like to call the drastic marching orders. And this is where uh, you read language like, hey, utterly destroy them, show no mercy, do not leave alive anything that breathes. And these are uh, commands God gives Israel for Canaan and that Israel is said to carry out with uh, people of Canaan. And so these drastic marching orders, there are three paradigm shifts that I found really helpful for kind of trying to get a clearer picture of what's actually going on with these. Uh, the first is to recognize these commands take place in the context of cities. And these cities were uh, not civilian population centers, but fortified military outposts, right? So hmm. uh, one of the challenges is, uh, as we read the Bible, it's just, we're, it's, you should think of it as like a cross-cultural experience. We're, you know, we're visiting a place thousands of years ago, different time, different place, and cities were different back then. And so one of the challenges is when we hear the word city today, we tend to think of a civilian population center where, yeah. uh, you know, I live here in Tempe and I walk outside my front door and there's like across the street in the city, there's, you know, other houses with right. white picket fences. I don't know, you go down the street one way and you've got like schools and a hospital and 
kids out playing and then you go down the other way, you've got businesses, restaurants. Today, cities are where the people live, but not so in the ancient Near East. In the ancient Near East, cities were prominently small fortified military outposts that guarded the roads that led up the way to where the people were in the villages and so on. And uh, it's interesting actually uh, that all the evidence we have for Jericho, for example, suggests that it was probably uh, only, you know, about how its inhabitants were about 100 to 150 soldiers. Hmm. Right? Hmm. And so in context here, when God's saying, hey, take out the cities, what we should picture is God's going, God is pulling down the Great Wall of China. He's not demolishing Beijing. Right? Like, yeah. like, would it, you say these cities are like forts? Yeah. Like okay. Forts. Garrisons. Okay. Garrisons. Forts. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Israel yeah. is taking out the Pentagon, okay. not New York City. Got right. Yeah. So they're military installations. This is in the context of battle, which doesn't mean there's not violence. Right. There's, you know, yeah, yeah, there's violence, there's bloodshed, that thing, the kind of thing going on. But these are military encounters. And I think the caricature that some people hmm. have is this is just sort of a civilian bloodbath. You know? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's not the picture that 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 we get here. A lot of times I think that that's the that's the tension, right? Is you know, you you read the picture book or you know, kids bibles or uh, you know, some sort of movie about Joshua and the battle of Jericho and it's like hundreds of thousands of people right. and, and and automatically you're thinking, "Oh, the invasion of Phoenix and they right. wiped out Phoenix and that's the elderly, that's yeah. the women, that's the children, that's the civilians, but this is hey, this is actually like a military fort." And it's the the general with his his soldiers. Yes. Yep. Totally. That's really helpful. Um, now, oh. go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I was gonna say, you know, one question some people comes up here is like, well, what about Rahab, right? Because right. Rahab, yeah. she's, yeah. she's not a soldier. What's going on there? Well, scholars believe that Rahab was likely uh, a prostitute who ran the uh, hostel. Right? So hmm. when you look at when archaeologists look at a lot of these ancient cities, these military garrisons, uh, they often had like a tavern slash pub that was also like a hostel where people who were visiting from out of town kind of thing could spend the night where basically the military could keep an eye on them, right? And right. so you had kind of a hotel type thing for out-of-towners. Uh, and this was often run by a prostitute because often the soldiers, unfortunately, mm. wanted more than just beer, right? Mm. You know, so mm. a place for, you know, they could, they could hang out after work, that kind of thing. So uh, with Rahab, I think one of the things that's really interesting is that she's actually... Uh, her and her family are the only civilians mentioned in these things, and their mm. lives are spared. They're spared, right, yeah. Spared. Yeah. Man, that's that's interesting with Jericho, too. I, I think another thing that, that I believe you write on in Skeletons, Josh, is uh, not just the number of soldiers, but a lot of times, you know, when we read what you said about the cross-cultural experience— uh, Jericho is, was also relatively small, right? It, mm -hmm. Isn't it only a, a number of acres? Yeah, I believe it's like, it's been a while since, but I believe it was like six acres um, and it could hold uh, more soldiers, but all the archaeological evidence, and I actually have a quote here from Richard Hess, a respected scholar on this stuff, and he uh, talks about here, he says, all the archaeological evidence indicates that no civilian populations existed at Jericho, I, and other cities mentioned in Joshua. Jericho was a small settlement of probably 100 or fewer soldiers. This is why all of Israel could circle it seven times and then do battle against it on the same day. Hmm. Yeah. So that's the first paradigm shift is just to say, hey, these are taking place in the context of cities and these are military encounters with these kind of military outposts and garrisons. Israel is basically taking out their defense system, right? Yeah. A second shift would be to say that 
uh, Israel is using what I like to call ancient trash talk. <laughs> and ancient trash talk, uh, what do I mean by that? Well, this is how ancient Near Eastern people talked about war. So you can read literally loads of accounts of people in this time and place, the ancient Near East, and as they talk about their military battles, they like to use hyperbolic language, like hyperbole, that was very uh, kind of extreme in the language they would use. Uh, but it was very clearly intended to be taken rhetorically because uh, you have all these accounts where it's like, dude, we annihilated them. We wiped them off the face of the earth, yeah. that kind of thing. And slaughter then you, them. We yeah. slaughter yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah. And then you come back the next year in the annals or in the you know records, yeah. and it's like the same <laughs> enemy is back again, <laughs> as strong as ever. You know? I thought they were gone, and now you're getting beat by them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And uh, and so similarly, uh, well, maybe to use an illustration here, I would suggest it's something like um, the locker room after a basketball. Totally. Game, right? I was going to say, know, like, this isn't too far into us. Like, yeah. we, we still talk like this today, totally. right? Dude, you know? the Suns got slaughtered yeah, by they got the, slaughtered. you know? They, they got crushed, you know? Totally. Yeah, totally. Just, so you walk into the locker room after the game, you hear the players talking, like, dude, we crushed them. We right. annihilated them. They could not get a thing past us they got nothing on us we just destroyed them and if you took the language literalistically you would assume like oh my gosh the score is 150 to zero mm-hmm. and then you walk out the locker room and you look at the scoreboard and it's like 120 to 100 and you're going okay it was a decisive victory but it's yeah. not as extreme as the rhetoric alone would lead you to believe mm. um now you wouldn't say oh my gosh why you guys got to be lying in the locker room right <laughs> like yeah. like the basketball players they're not lying they're just using an understand understood method of speaking to communicate right now the reality is even if we didn't have these ancient examples hmm. i would suggest to you the old testament demands to be read this way hmm. uh and here's why here's what i mean that this language the drastic marching orders are actually extremely rare they only really show up in four main places. There's God saying, do it. There's two places, battles where it's said to be done. And there's one place where they're looking back and saying, we did it, right? And what we see when we look at these two battles where it supposedly takes place uh, is all you got to do is keep reading a little while later. And you say you see that the same people that were supposedly wiped off the face of the planet are back again, strong as ever, right. causing just as much damage as before, right? So, um, so one key place, we may focus in on one of those, and that's Joshua 9 to 12. So this is kind of the key place, right? So mm. Joshua 9 to 12, in context, uh, the forces of northern Canaan and southern Canaan, the kings and their forces are all rallying to take out Israel. And so it's interesting, it's predict, presented as a defensive battle on Israel's part. Mm. And this is the famous story where God fights on behalf of his people. Right, the, the sun, sun stands, stands still. still. Mm. God rains down enemy hailstones on the enemy armies, and they all flee and they're running off. And when the battle's been won, Joshua uh, stands up and says, like, dude, we did it. Like, we utterly destroyed them. We showed no mercy. We did not leave live anything that breathes. And he keeps on going. He says, but we conquered all the kings of Canaan. We took all the land of Canaan. Yeah. If you read what he's saying, literalistically, he's saying it's over. It's done. Promised land is ours. Conquest is complete. The whole thing is done. Game over. There's no more. There's no no more survivors. No survivors. Right, right. The only problem with that is we are in Joshua 12. (laughs) (laughs) All you got to do is keep reading in Joshua 13, 14, and, uh, you know, Judges and 1 Samuel 6. It's not going to be until the days of David, generations later, that what Joshua was saying happened actually happened. And so throughout history, like Jewish interpretation, they've seen and understood like this is rhetorical language that's describing uh, a, a literal victory, but is using this hyperbolic language. And I think it's helpful for us to maybe zoom out here. And, and I think there's an interesting lesson here for what is sometimes called hermeneutics. Like, how do we read scripture? Healthy hmm. reading. And one of the first things that can be really helpful here is looking at genre. Like, what is yeah. the genre hmm. that we're reading? So you're going to read 
um, the poetry of the Psalms different than you're going to read an epistle letter of Paul in the right. New Testament. You're going to read apocalyptic imagery in Revelation different than you're going to read historical uh, accounts similar yeah. versus a parable, right? And I was just you, what we have here is a genre of ancient war records, right? Yeah. And, and a type of language that's used there. And so just like the locker room after the basketball game, it's not saying Israel's lying. It's not saying this is inauthentic. It's not saying anything like that. It's just recognizing the genre of communication that's going on. And yeah, and seeing like, yeah, yeah. it's communicating that they did kick some butt and had a decisive victory. They won a battle. <laughs> they won a battle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I think, you know, one of the questions that, that arises with hyperbole and what you just talked about with hermeneutics and that the genre is helpful, but man, for a lot of times it's like, this is God's word and yet there's hyperbole. And so is God stretching the truth here? Right. Josh? Like, mm, yeah. is this, how reliable is this? Because if it says there's 132,000, yeah. but you know, it was only so many, you know, how can we, how can we make sense of that? Genre helps, but yeah, what would you say to that? Like, and, is God and, stretching the truth? And I would even add to that. It's like, yeah. is God stretching the truth or are we like stretching ourselves for God, right? To yeah. make an excuse for him um, to deal with some of the more difficult passages in scripture. Mm. Like what is actually the right way to read? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a great question. So on the one hand where uh, it says, you know, cause it raises a question like um, God himself at one point says, do this, like utterly destroy them, show no mercy, do not leave alive anything that breathes. So does God use hyperbole? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but one of the things I think is helpful is when you keep reading in these two examples where they, they describe doing it, and then uh, the other one where they look back and they say, we did it, what that shows is they are understanding God's original command mm. to mean this, right? It's good. Yeah. yeah. And they, they're understanding God's original command to mean this. And I would say as well, uh, on the question Warren you raised yeah. of going like, dude, are we just trying to make excuses for God? Right. Make it seem and I say, no, we're just trying to get a healthier understanding of dude, what's going on in the text itself. Because often yeah. I think we can approach the text with a caricature of what's happening. And sometimes that caricature has been presented to us by our culture. We live in a moment today, culturally, where many are extremely sensitive to uh, things like violence and th things that may have been more natural through much of history is just a part of life. And right. they were extremely sensitive to those things in, in a unique way. And so, uh, and there are a lot of critiques of Christianity. So we come like with that caricature, perhaps what's going on. And uh, one of the things that was most helpful for me in dismantling the caricature was actually reading the biblical narrative itself and going, totally. there's more going on here. There's right. more yeah, nuance right. in the text. And then you start reading Christian tradition and history. You start reading Jewish interpretations throughout history and going, oh yeah, throughout history, people have seen that, you know, like, yeah. Um, and we also have to, we believe in the coherency of scripture. And so we have to grapple with how does all these pieces fit together? How does Joshua saying we utterly destroyed them. We showed them, totally, you know, they're all right. gone. Reconcile with the fact that like that doesn't happen for generations later. We got to grapple with that kind of thing too. One of one of my favorite things, just when you were talking about that Joshua 9, uh, 9 through 12, uh, that stands out when you're reading the narrative, where you really have to wrestle with is, you know, uh, when you read through Joshua, it shows exactly what you're saying, that, that Israel did not utterly eliminate and destroy yeah. all the Canaanites uh -huh. because in Joshua 9 then uh verse 27 all of a sudden the Gibeonites appear right. and so you're like wait if they're all gone where'd the Gibeonites come right. from and yet you see that the Gibeonites in that verse are woodcutters and they're water carriers for the altar for Yahweh and so you see even when you're reading through wait if this really happened then what about the Gideonites or then even later on in Joshua where it's like you see a bunch of Canaanites inhabiting like uh, the the village, the, the town of Gezer, you know, right. places like that where you're just like, wait, you know, as you read through it. I think the other thing that, that really stands out to me where what you're talking about, Josh, is 
God used this language, but the people understood it. And like, does God use hyperbole? Yes. And I think so many of us, we know that when we come to Jesus, of Jesus says, gouge out your eye, cut off your hand. None of us are gouging out our eyes. We know (laughs) Jesus is using hyperbole, you know? And so I think it's helpful to say like, yeah, actually God is speaking in hyperbole. And yet he was using a language in a particular time and place that was very common throughout the ancient Near Eastern society. And he's speaking in, in, in that language that the people understood. It's just hard for us now sitting 21st yeah, century 10 I mean, you know? I, I even just think about some of the worst parts of the 20th century, right? It was mm. just like genocide, right? Whether it's Nazi, the Holocaust, you know, whether it's Rwanda, wherever we've seen genocide just pop up um, along the course of history, especially in the 20th century, I think, you know, when... It's no wonder that when we when we approach passages like this, our kind of antennas go up to say, "Wait a second! Like this can't be good, right? This this does not reflect a good God." And so I think absolutely us taking off our now our twenty first century glasses, right, and reading this in its proper context allows for us to really understand really what's going on here. So I think that's that's great. Yeah, yeah, makes one a ton thing, of sense. Yeah, yeah. One thing I love, a few thoughts there. You know, one thing I love is uh, there's a guy John Walton, an Old Testament scholar. He talks about how the Bible was written for us, but it wasn't written to us, mm-hmm. right? You know, it was written to ancient Israel in their particular context. And so one of the things we have to grapple with in biblical interpretation is we have to go, what what did this mean for its original audience? You know, yeah. authorial intent. What did the author intend uh, as it was communicating this? And what, right. you know, how was it understood by its original audience? Um, and I like here, maybe just to quote real quick, Christopher J.H. Wright, he's a uh, significant Old Testament scholar, one of the most respected Old Testament scholars in the world. He's actually done a lot with us here with Michigan yeah. Training Center and, and our theological education stuff here. But this is a quote by him where he says um, on this topic, we must also recognize that the language of warfare had a conventional rhetoric that liked to make absolute and universal claims about total victory and completely wiping out the enemy. Mm. Such rhetoric often exceeded reality on the ground. This is not to accuse the biblical writers of falsehood, but to recognize the literary conventions of writing about warfare. So he's just going, they're not, it's like the basketball players in the locker room. They're not lying. They're just using convention, conventional way of talking about war. Uh, similarly, Paul Copan, he's got a great book. Um, oh my gosh. He's got a moral monster. Yeah, yeah, he's got he a read years monster, ago, but yeah. it's a really good mm-hmm. one. And on this uh, topic too, he writes how uh, a closer look at the biblical text reveals a lot more nuance and a lot less bloodshed. Uh, yeah. And he goes on to yeah, describe yeah. all that. But Anyways, I would suggest, so here's the third paradigm shift though, right? So we've talked about military cities. We've talked about ancient trash talk. Um, but the third one I would suggest is uh, perhaps the most significant hmm. of all three. And it's this, that the dominant language the Bible uses for Israel with Canaan is driving them out, not killing them off, right? So the killing them off language, you know, like the drastic marching orders, they show up again in like four places. But the driving them out language shows up like over 50 times for Israel with Canaan. So this is the Bible's primary way of depicting what is happening as Israel goes into the promised land. Hmm. And I like to think of it like the rowdy bouncer, you know, the rowdy dancer at the nightclub who gets kicked out of the club by the bouncer, right? The bad news is you got booted. The good news is you're still alive. Right? Yeah. And I'd suggest similarly, there's something going on here where God is driving out the rowdy Canaanites, so to speak, who are thrashing and destroying his good garden, mm. who have filled it with mm. violence and injustice. And uh, one of the bigger themes here I've found is the patience of God. We're told earlier in Genesis 17, God actually waits 400, 400 years, years for yeah. the sin in the land of the people in the land right. to build up to its full extent. And so God is extremely patient with the powers of of Canaan, and you're also going, these are the mightiest imperial powerhouses of the ancient world that Israel's going up against. And they're this ragtag small crew. 
so one of the things that you see is a lot of the driving out language, hmm. it's emphasizing that uh, this power dynamic, it's, it's, it's a lot of them, it's not just like, hey, Israel, drive them out. It's God going, don't be intimidated. I will drive them out yeah. for you. And so I like to picture God is like driving out the rowdy hooligans who are thrashing his good garden, and he's handed it over to his nation of homeless, wandering slaves who've had hmm. the boot of empire on their neck for centuries. There's actually a picture of something pretty powerful happening here. It's the kingdom of reversal where the last right. become first and yeah, the first become last, last. Like a massive level. I just, you know, Josh, I think even, uh, you know, as you, you go through those points and like, I think one of the things I, I see commonly too, like even I talked about YouTube comments, one of the common responses I'll see from Christians like responding to this stuff is like, well, that was just the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, you know, he's all about grace and love and mercy and peace. And, you know, he's not like that anymore. It's like God just kind of like his personality changed. Um, and so I think what what about understanding the bigger story of scripture um, helps us also to understand some of the things that we see going on um, through, through these uh, troubling, seemingly troubling passages? Definitely, man. Well, first off, man, I just say just maybe to get practical for a yeah. moment. I found this stuff actually really hopeful when you uh, dig into it, man, because uh, I believe it's one God. This is right. The God revealed in Jesus is at work in these passages exactly. in the Old Testament, right? Like yes. this is. Uh, this is the, yeah, the triune God right. is at work executing the stuff, the events, the things yes, that we're seeing never here changing. in the Old Testament, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So, um, and one of the things I find super hopeful about this is, uh, you know, we live in a world today where I think particularly of like the global church, people around the world who are suffering under the weight of injustice. Yeah. And there is this reality that God is patient with the empires of our world. He is mm. patient waiting for the sin to reach its full extent. He is patient with kind of the powerhouses here, but I think we see here an eschatological sign and foretaste, you could say, of the kingdom that's coming. The the hope that we see here is that God is patient with the powers of our world, but one day that patience will come to an end. And God is coming to tear down Babylon and to establish his good kingdom and its place. And that's the hope of the world, particularly for those who, yeah, are on the underside of history. You know, they've got... Um, the, the Babylon, the, yeah, yeah, the blood absolutely. that is crying yeah. up from around mm-hmm. the world, up from, up from the ground. The hope is that uh, Babylon does not have the last word. John's kingdom does. Yeah, it's it seems like the caricature makes it horrific, but there's uh, when you really drill in, there's actually beauty and hope in the midst of it. Um, and especially just going back to what you were talking about with with driving out, that's a common. Um, theme throughout the entire the bigger story right. throughout the entire biblical story of from the beginning yeah right? adam what happened to adam and eve man it's <laughs> driven out yeah man, and and like god has this sacred space of eden and when they rebel they get driven out yeah. and then you start to see this pattern of driving out through the story um not only with joshua and what happens with israel taking the land but what happens when they rebel, when Israel rebels against their God, they get driven out into exile. And what we see, what what Josh, what you're just talking about of, man, the looking forward to what's to come, evil will be ban- will be banished. It will be driven out when God's kingdom is fully here. And there, there's beauty and there's hope in the midst of that for the evil and the injustice in the world is that, man, God is going to drive out all of the evil and injustice one day in our world. And that's that's good news. Yeah. Hey, hey, Josh, I would love to hear your thoughts on this. So usually like, I think the textbook definition of genocide is like the destruction of a per- people because of their ethnicity, race, and something like that. Right. 
But what's going on with like the Canaanites and these people that we're talking about who, you know, the language was to drive them out is that, right, th- this wasn't based on their race or their ethnicity or something like that. It was some level like based on their actual actions, right, on their sin. Like the, even when the Old Testament law is given, you know, it's often said it's a polemic against, you know, the, the, the terrible sins that were going on in the surrounding nation. So, yeah, is there something you, yeah, you can say, totally. say so, about that? You know, a couple of thoughts. One yeah. is, you're right, dude. It's not, uh, the, the driver here is not ethnicity. It's, uh, I, I, but I, I also wouldn't want to say it's just religious practices because hmm. we tend to think of religious practices in a very small, confined right. category. And when you look at what, you know, archaeologically, even historically, what was going on in Canaan at the time? It is brutal. Right. Stomach churning. Yes. Child sacrifice. Horrible. Terrible stuff. Yeah. We, san- we sanitize the Bible when we read right. it. Right. Like we, we don't, it's like, oh man, you know, you make God out to be the one that's the bloodthirsty one. And the stuff that is going on in with the Canaanites is horrific. It right. is. It's stomach churning. And we kind of sanitize that over and just read it. Oh, the Canaanites. Right. Yeah. But again, I think one of the things I would say is that, so this is, I think it's not uh, accurate to just depict this as a religious thing, right? The way that we think about religion today, like, uh, it's not because of ethnicity, it's because of religion. It's, I think it's more our our motto, all of life is all for Jesus. Like the all of life stuff that was happening in Canaan was brutal. Hmm. And one of the things that I also find really powerful about this language is what we might call the power dynamics. Right. This this made some other paradigm shifts. All right. Um, hmm. What is the bigger story that's going on here? Yeah. Between Israel and Canaan. Uh, because I'd suggest when many of us have uh, we think of holy war, we hear that phrase. The caricature is that holy war is the strong using God or the gods to justify their conquest of the weak. Right. But what we find in the Old Testament is the opposite. It's hmm. actually God arising on behalf of the weak yeah. against the tyranny of the strong. So yes. we got to remember who Israel is in this. Right? Like we are talking about uh, a nation of slaves who had Egypt's boot on their neck for right. generations, and they are going up against the mightiest imperial powerhouses of the ancient world. They're going up against Egypt. They're going up against the powers in Canaan. And this is like the most dramatic underdog story ever told. Right? <laughs> and so if you just think yeah. about the weapons that they had, uh, Israel is radically outgunned and outmanned, right? Like, Do they even have any weapons? I mean, I, I mean com- in man. comparison, right, to some of the things yeah. they're facing, right? Chariots well, look at, and, look at David and Goliath. Yeah. David, <laughs> David's got a slingshot. <laughs> With totally. no stones, right. he's got to go find the stones. <laughs> totally, totally. Oh, man. So, uh, yeah, so... Israel, it's not like there's a stockpile of AK-47s waiting for them out in the wilderness after they leave Egypt, right? Like, they've got what sticks and stones, whatever they want to muddle together. I mean, they, they probably pull some weapons together, but they, they're, like, um, they're going up against horses and chariots and that kind of stuff. And so I like to think of the picture as going, like, dude, Israel's like a kindergartner who's taking on the high school senior class with a wiffle bat. Right? Mm, <laughs> like, yeah. their weapons are ridiculous in comparison to what they're going up against. Um Also, when we think about, like, their defenses, their generals, their armor, like, dude, Canaan has got, like, heavily fortified military outposts. Mm -hmm. They've got high walls. Um, Israel's got her defense is, like, this small wooden box she's been carrying around in the wilderness with her, which is the Ark of the Covenant, which is a sign that God's presence goes with her, right? Um, The uh, Canaan, they have got high-tech metal armor, that kind of thing. Israel, we're told, is wearing the same ratty clothes they've been wandering in the wilderness with for 40 years, right? So uh, when we think about warriors, Canaan's warriors are described as giants. They're yeah. intimidated by the size. They've been feasting on the land of milk and honey for generations. Uh, Israel's been feeding on, you know, water and 
bread from heaven, man. Right. You know, like like prison food. You know, right, bread and water, right, basically. Right. Like they, they've had they've they've been in survival mode for a while, uh, and so is you know, Kenan has all of the wealth and affluence at all, and the confidence that brings. And dude, Israel is marching into Canaan like ants under elephants' feet, right? Like they yeah. are the tiny underdog going up against the big guys. I, I think I put it like, uh, dude, yeah. Israel, it's like they're storming Fort Knox with a water pistol. Water pistol. Right. I, li- I love that quote from yeah. your book. It, it, it's so interesting. It makes me think back to Jericho again of like, dude, you look at the mismatch there. Right. This is a military fortress, heavy armory. And dude, how do the walls fall down? They they they, they circle it. Yeah, <laughs> they circle around and circle yell. Yeah. Yeah. Blow some horns. Yeah, it's exactly. like okay, what? And the walls yeah. come tumbling down. Yeah. Talk yeah. about the weaponry. Hey, we we got some singing. We got some horns. Yeah, We're right, coming right, after right, you. Right, right. Totally. And that's actually a major theme too. Is that Israel's strategies as they go in are ridiculous? Right. Yeah. It's not only that they don't have the weapons. They're outgunned. They're outmanned. But also the strategy they use are. Don't make any sense at all, right? So Jericho, like you mentioned, it's like, if I'm Joshua, and I'm thinking like, oh, I am Joshua. But you know, if, I, if I'm Joshua back then, like, how, okay, God, how are we going to take the city? And God's like, all right, what's the battle plan? Wait for it. Okay, here's it. I want you guys to circle the walls right. for seven days and blow trumpets. You know, if I'm Jericho, I'm like, dude, you know, you can imagine, oh, man, like, dude, Canada trying to storm in with rock guitars and band. Or yeah. You know, it's like, dude, you'd be laughing at them. Uh, but there's actually a point to it. Even though it looks ridiculous, there's actually a meaning and a message. And it's going, Israel is going in in a posture of worship and trusting God to fight. For mm. it, right? You even see that and you mention in Gideon, right? Yes. Where God's like, no, cut down the number, cut down yeah. the number, cut yes. down the number. Um, so that Gideon will be reminded that it's God, right? Yes. Who, is, who is getting the victory. It's God who's getting the glory. It's God who's the one who's fighting for them. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Gideon, you mentioned this famous yeah. story where God has Gideon whittle down the numbers from 32,000 to 300. And uh, <laughs> I mean, that's like a 99% decrease, you know? Right. And in contest, we're already told Midian's forces are going up against like as numerous as the sand right. on the seashore. So right. they're just, if I'm Gideon, I'm going, dude, how are we going to take on? We're so outnumbered. And God's like, hey, let's take away 99% of your army. Like, dude, what are you, <laughs> you can imagine like Lincoln in the Civil War sending like 99% of the troops back home right. to the Union just going, hey, just to make a point or something like that. Yeah. Like, so uh, their strategies are ridiculous. And, um, but the, again, there's a point to it. The point is to recognize that God is the one fighting on their behalf, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and I actually think this is, some of this is where uh, Israel's, kind of language read in the Psalms that says some trust in chariots, yeah. some in horses, but we trust, we trust in the name in the of the Lord, Lord our God. Lord. Yes. Yeah. They had lived that. They were seeing that's their battle cry mm. going, dude, Egypt and Canaan and these powers right. we've gone up against, they've trusted in their chariots and horses, but we're trusting the name of God. I love the scene. Um, you know, you hear that phrase, be still and know that I am God. Yeah. Be that means still. just sit down in your closet, right? Maybe what have that? some good quiet music playing on in the background and just know that you're just supposed to sit there and God, the presence of God is just saturating that room, that space. That's what that means, right? That's what that passage is supposed totally. to. That's, that's what, what I, you think. That's, that's what it means for me. That's what it means for me. Sweet moment in our prayer closets. Totally. Like, dude, that's so, totally, we tend to think of like the Hallmark card, you know, and right. like the peaceful stream. Absolutely. Life is crazy busy, so calm yourself. I'm not saying that's true, but in its original context, I don't know what it meant, right, actually. Right. This is yeah. actually a war verse. This was a holy mm-hmm. war verse. And its roots are at the crossing of the Red Sea, where Israel is uh, trying to get out of Egypt. Yes. Pharaoh's horses and chariots are pounding down on their heels. Israel's about to get crushed between the waters on the one side, kind of natural forces of chaos, and Pharaoh and the political forces of chaos on the other side. 
and uh, Moses looks up to God, and God basically gives him the battle plan, and he says, um, hey, you, um, basically he says, I'm going to fight for you. All you need to do is be still. Yes. And uh, and God parts the waters and brings his people through and brings it back down uh, on the, the Egyptians. And the you know Old Testament scholars would say here, like, that gets picked up and summarized later in the Old Testament throughout as be still and know that I am God. Hmm. And so really going, yeah, it's a, it's a holy war, war verse. The picture that we should have in mind is this is um, God arising to defend his weak and vulnerable people from the forces that seek to destroy them. That's good. And so now we know that that, that uh, particular passage just doesn't belong in like a mug or a nice <laughs> with the other scripture verses we've taken out of context. <laughs> well, yeah, another thought I throw in too is I think it's helpful here. We can distinguish it from terrorism too, mm. right? Because yeah, you, you could totally like you could say like, okay, well, Israel's not the strong fighting on behalf of God, you know, if, using God to take out the weak. But Israel is the weak, so is this just the weak using God to justify their conquest of the strong, you know? Mm-hmm. And going, no, it's not, Israel's model is not, we will fight for God. Her motto is, God will fight for us. Like, mm-hmm. And if he doesn't, we don't have his chance, right? So when you think about terrorists, I think what we see in terrorism is, um, we will fight for God, right? Yes, like, we're right. going to go out and take on the empire for God kind of thing. And, we're, and uh, But we see a radically different picture here. This is not cowards taking pot shots at civilians from the shadows and hiding out in caves. This is a visibly vulnerable, identifiable group of people standing out on the open battlefield about to get crushed unless God shows up on their behalf. Hmm. So again, um, yeah, Israel's not taking on the empire for God. God is taking on the empire for Israel. It's really good, man. If, uh, if you were to do, I I know that you've, You've talked about it, written on it, but the uh, the ten step, the ten step uh, battle plan for uh, for this, yeah. Uh, what what what, uh, what would that be? Yes, that's great. That's great. Well, maybe to, to set that up to one of the, you mentioned earlier, David and Goliath, and I love the David and Goliath story, and I think it sets sets up this theme. Um, I, I'd suggest David and Goliath it can feel like this classic children's story or whatever, right? Um, but it is really the ultimate epitome of everything that we've been talking about. Yeah. Right. Um, and so when you think of, uh, well, first off, we're told that it takes place at the, uh, at Gath, I forget the, the, the Valley of Elah. Mm-hmm. And when you look into it, what you find the Valley of Elah was, it was the border border to the last part of the promised land that had yet to be taken. So the story is not just dude takes out a giant. Like the story is the completion of the conquest. This is the finishing mm. of Israel entering the promised land. So it's a climactic, holy war story of Israel and Canaan. And what you see is that David and Goliath each represent in many ways their people, like people mm-hmm. who come before him. So um, we think of weapons, like Goliath is huge. He's a giant. giant. He's yeah. armed to the teeth. He's got all the weapons and spears and sword and armor and all that kind of stuff, just like Canaan has throughout this whole ordeal. And when you look at David, he's like a perfect <laughs> representative you yeah. know, for Israel. Like, uh, the smallest brother. Size, the they, smallest they try brother. to put the armor and give him the sword, and he's like, "I, I can't do this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He can't even fit. He I can't, can't fit, fit the armor. armor. <laughs> you know, he, he's coming in with a yeah. sling and a stone. Right. Which dude, this dude uh, was uh, this dude was like the modern day DoorDash. He was delivering food to his brothers on the battlefield. You know, <laughs> totally, totally, totally. And 
And, uh, you know, I get Malcolm Gladwell has kind of written on like, oh, well, the slingshot was actually strategic, but I don't think anyone in the ancient world was reading the story right. going, oh, yeah, well, I w- yeah. I'm going to go do it then, right? You know, like, <laughs> like, like there's this reality of, dude, his weaponry, his armor, his all that kind of stuff is just, you know, ridiculous. And when you look at even the ideology, Goliath's motto is, I'm going to fight on behalf of my gods and take you out. Right. David's motto is the opposite. He says, God's going to fight on behalf of me and right. take you out. You know, he yeah. the armies of the living God. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And God does sling in a stone and boom, it's over. You know, and, and so I think that's like a good image to have in our head of like, this is like an encapsulation of what's gone before mm. here. Uh, but I love it. Yeah, I kind of talk about yeah, it in the I book. Your, like, I have your list, man, right okay, here in front it. of me. Yeah. yeah. So Yeah, create this strategy for here us. Here we go. Here's, we want to we get practical. Yes. Some of you are going, how do I go out there and fight a holy war? And we want to give you the 10 steps. <laughs> ten if you really want to go guys, fight a biblical holy notebooks. war, here you go. <laughs> here we go. Here are the steps. All right, number one, throw away your armor. Two, burn your tactical training books. Three, find the cheapest, most ineffective weapons you can. Four, visit a drug rehab center to find military leaders with Issues. Five, hire a reporter to meticulously track all your flaws and failures. Six, boast to your enemies about how backward your civilization is. Seven, go find the biggest, baddest superpower who will surely kick your tail. Eight, you go, obviously then, pick a fight. Nine, walk onto the the middle of the battlefield and pray. And ten, is pray that God shows up. <laughs> you better pray. You better pray. <laughs> you better pray. Dude, That's nobody good. in their right mind is going to fight a battle like that, right? And I think yeah. one of the challenges with this is sometimes people think, well, hey, if I believe in this or I you know, read this or hear this, then uh, people are going to be more prone to want to be violent today. I think the opposite, dude. When you really get the narrative of what's going on here, um, it puts you in a spot of going, nobody's going to fight a battle like that. And it puts us more in a spot of going, dude, in the midst of our weakness and our vulnerability, we want to look to God to be the one who fights mm. for us. And I, I, I'm glad that you said that because I think um, just some of the things that maybe you, you see or hear is like, well, sometimes even in the church, it's like, well, we have to go and fight. We have to go, you know, and, and there are all sorts of things that, and that are projected onto geopolitical stuff that's happening. And, um, you know, there are many reasons why the conditions of what we read in the Old Testament is not the same as what we experience as the church today. But yeah, you know, we ultimately trust that God is going to be the one fighting for us, right? And also we don't live under under a theocracy with God as directly as our king, right? And so totally. the conditions are completely different as us, the church today. Totally. I, I think of that drive out language we talked right. about earlier. And one yeah. of the themes that I mentioned the way that it gets used is this. It's like looking to God to be the one who fights right. on their behalf. And so... Uh, just a few examples, Deuteronomy 11 says, the Lord will drive out all these nations before you and you will dispossess nations larger and stronger than you. And so there it's emphasizing again the power dynamic. Of going, yeah. Dude, even though you're weak, even though it looks like you ain't got a chance, like God's the agent who's fighting on your behalf. Right? Yeah. Uh, Exodus 23 says, God says, little by little, I will drive them out before you until you've increased enough to take possession of the land. So it's going, this is a gradual process. It's not an overnight eviction. Like there's mm. a process God's doing. And in Joshua 23, they look back and say, the Lord has driven out before you great and powerful nations. The state no one has been able to withstand you. You look at all of those as examples, and it's God's the primary agent. There's an emphasis on how weak and, uh, man, it's like, dude, we don't have a shot if this is riding on us. But we're looking to God, fight our battles for us, recognizing that we live in a hostile world where there are many forces seeking to take us out, you know, physical, spiritual, and more. Yeah, I think that that's... Man, I think it's so helpful and it's good news for us of that God is fighting for us. But even at, like for me, reading through the Old Testament, 
talking with people who are reading through the Old Testament, wrestling with through wrestling through some of this stuff, like the paradigm shifts that you just talked through, Josh, that we've been kind of having discussions on here. It's really helpful because what you see is these caricatures begin to fall apart and you begin to see that this is not genocide, um, you know, especially with this driving out language that these are military outposts. A lot of the things that people are wrestling with start to see that there are caricatures that are built. But when you really drill in, it gives you a much healthier understanding of what's going on, of what God is actually up to, and also the character of God. Um, that we see. And so, man, I think that these, these are so, so helpful um, in understanding that. Um, One of the things though, that you hit on earlier that I would love to circle back to is um, the patience of God. Um, Because that's, that's a huge thing in, in this conversation that we see in the Old Testament, right? We see there's 400 years and yeah, I'd love for you guys to speak on just the patience of God that we see. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I know the, the passage that we're thinking about here is Genesis 17. That's God talking to Abraham, right? And he's telling him all the things. He's giving him the promises, right? And there he says, like, there's going to be a time where your people are, um, you know, um, uh, slave, enslaved in the, in the land. And, you know, there will, there will be a time of justice for the people who are persecuting them. But the, the time of their sins hasn't reached its full point for God to exact his justice just yet. And so like, yeah, Josh, I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on what is, what's happening there. What is the patience of God? What, what, what's going on there? Yeah. A few observations. So yeah. it's Genesis 15, 15. If you want to look it yeah. up, totally. Okay. And, and look it up. And, and as God is giving Abraham this foreshadow of what's to come. And it's actually this, this um, vision that where God's uh, making this, co- you know, making this covenant with Abraham and a few observations here. God tells Abraham essentially, like, "Hey, your kids are going to go into Egypt. They're right. going to be enslaved be for enslaved. four generations, yeah. four hundred years." And um, if I am Abraham, I would be like, "What the heck, God? Like, <laughs> I've given everything to follow you. Right. I've given my life in faith. Like, I've trusted you. I've gone all this way. And like, do what you want to me, but don't let that happen to my kids, right. you know, or my grandkids, or you know, like." Um, and so, uh, if you're Abraham, you're going, "Dude, this is huge." for me and and my family and going, God, why not? Why, why are you going to allow this to Hmm. happen to my family, my kids? And God's response is I'm being patient with Canaan, Hmm. you know? And so the patience of God with Canaan, it's not just a, um, uh, God's not just kind of picking the daisies and going, Oh, cool. I'm just waiting by my time. You know, like God is enduring the suffering of his people in order to be patient with Canaan, right? Hmm. Uh, God's patience is costly. And I think mm. we see that in our world today, that God is patient with the powers of our world. And that means that there is uh, immense suffering. There is immense justice. There is immense bloodshed. There is there are horrible things. We, when we talk about genocide, you know, like we see genocide in the 20th century, the horror, God's patience with the principalities and powers mm. and the things of this world that have unleashed such violent destruction, the forces of hell at work. And what we find in the Bible is that the Bible's question is not, God, if you're good, why would you ever intervene? Hmm. The Bible's question is, God, because you are good, why do you wait so long? Right? Yeah. God, because you are good, why do you wait so long? And this is the cry of God's people throughout hmm. Scripture. And so I think the hope that we find here, again, is going, um, because God is good, he, he is patient with the world. Like the reason that God is allowing these things to happen today, like God is patient with our world, yeah. but it's also because God is good that his patience will not last. 
forever. Yeah. And as I've worked a lot internationally, I've worked in a lot of post-genocide zones. We've spent a long time working in Rwanda and Cambodia over the years, uh, sites of two of the worst genocides in the 20th century. And what I've found has been, uh, amongst the church there, the hope for God's justice, mm. that he is coming yes. to deal with and reckon with evil and the powers of sin and injustice and violence and all that that's wreaked havoc in our world. But those things do not have the last word. That again, the hope of the gospel is God is coming to tear down Babylon and to establish his good kingdom in its place. Mm. That, that is hope for the world. That's why in the in the book I call that section the hope of holy war. You know? Yeah. Which I think yeah. most people probably don't think of hope when they think of holy war no. or violence in the Bible or any of that kind of thing. But I ultimately find this a great source of hope um, in the hope that God is coming to establish his kingdom. Yeah. Yeah, the patience of God too, um, the, the hope for his return to come back to make all the wrong right, to drive out the evil and injustice is good news. And even for us sitting around the table, the patience of God is good news. Because if it wasn't for the patience of God, we wouldn't be sitting here, right? Like it, it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Right. It's his patience that he is slow to anger where, man, we, we have lived apart from God, but because of his patience, we're now grafted in. And like an, another reason why he is patient is like, man, he desires that people would repent yeah. and experience abundant yes. life in him, experience the way of his kingdom, all of that. And it's like, yeah, patience, the patience of God is good news here and now in the moment. And it's also good news for what's to come. Absolutely. Jo uh, John, you mentioned it or alluded to it, but I was even thinking second Peter three, nine, right? It says the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, in our own personal stories, we are so grateful <laughs> for God's patience in our lives, uh, patience with our lives and um, with our sin, and um, yeah, how He's uh, His this His long suffering nature, right? And so many of us have stepped into that and um, allowed, you know, just experience transformation in our lives because of God's patience with us. And so, hmm. it's good. Well, we hope that uh, as you read the Old Testament, as you hear conversations around man, the, the violence in the Old Testament. And man, is God bloodthirsty? Is he uh, condoning right. genocide? A lot of these questions, we hope that this podcast is a helpful tool uh, to equip you to understand the different genres of scripture, how to read the Bible, how to wrestle with some of these things. Um, and, and we know that there, there are some, some tough passages, but hopefully this helps you. And um, we will always be available for conversations. Uh, Josh is really, really helpful in these conversations. If you have not read his book, Skeletons in God's Closet, it's really, really helpful. Um, thank you for listening. Josh, thanks for being on here. Warren, yeah, thanks, thanks for your you time, guys. guys. Till next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the All of Life podcast. To get more information on Redemption Church Tempe, you can download the Redemption Tempe app, or you can send an email to tempe at redemptionaz.com.